chapter 2. We started a series last week in the book of Galatians, and we will be looking at this book. We're going to do chapter at a time, and we'll be done with it right before Easter. Um, kind of preparing uh, during this Lent season for the coming of uh, for the, uh, the, the the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ that we celebrate on Friday and on Easter. And so Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to read this and then I'm going to pray and then we will get started. Galatians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, um, there's the, 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 it's on the screen. There's also Bibles in the back there if you want to grab one of those. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that home with you. Starting verse 1. Then after 14 years, I, Paul, went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. In order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that we might, that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been trusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, yet just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me, from mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came James who was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness was through the law, 
then Christ died for no confidence. Let's pray. So, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would teach us. Lord, we pray that you would convict us. Lord, that you would encourage us through your word. Lord, we pray this morning for those who are traveling uh, around the country, Lord, abroad as well. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would keep them safe. Lord, we pray for those who are still sick and struggling with flu-like systems, uh, uh, flu-like symptoms, Lord. Lord, we pray for them as well. I pray that you would bring healing to many who are struggling with the coronavirus, Lord. We pray for those around the world who are struggling with this virus, Lord. May you use this tragedy, Lord. May you use this disease and this virus, Lord, to point people to Christ. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to teach us as a church, Lord, to be more dependent on you and, be, and to be united together in Christ. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the, the, the title of the sermon is Divided by Faith. Um, it kind, of a, kind of a big idea, or main idea, just to kind of help, help kind of focus what Paul is talking about in Galatians 2. Is there, there should be no division in faith, but a shared identity in Christ. There should be no division in faith, but a shared identity in Christ. The sermon is titled Divided by Faith because it's based off a book by Michael Emerson called Divided by Faith. And the book is about the history of the separation between African Americans and whites in the church. And kind of the, the issue of why, why now, at this point in our history as a country, do you have predominantly black churches and predominantly white churches? If you don't know this is going on, you notice that this church is predominantly white. If you go to most churches in this town, you're going to have a predominantly white congregations and predominantly black congregations in Evansville. Well, this is true with most cities in the United States when it comes to church. Usually the, the famous uh, phrase is the, 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 most, uh, uh, the, the most segregation in the United States is in pews. And the book really is very interesting because while it does provide solutions... To this issue, it provides some historical analysis on how we've gotten to this point. Um, and I want to kind of introduce some of this history to you if you're not familiar with it. Um, but just to kind of start with what's happened in American history, right? When, when America started as a country, actually before it started as a country, slavery was very prominent in the, in the 13 colonies, right? Uh, as a British, British territory, as British colonies, the British slave trade was very prominent, and uh, the United the, the, the 13 colonies had slaves, um, and actually, uh, I think I had, I had the number, but 20% of the American population in 1750, this was during the colonies, this is before the United States, before the Revolutionary War, 20% of the American population were African slaves. 20% of the colony population were African slaves. And the, and the view of Christians during this time, uh, one prominent preacher, Cotton Mathers, argued that we should Christianize, they should Christianize slaves. And the view is, was not necessarily they would Christianize them because they wanted them to know Jesus. They thought they would be better slaves if they were Christian. So, and, and really, the, the reason that, 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 that the, kind of the, the feeling was is that instead of just calling into ending slavery during, in the 13 colonies, they believed strongly that they had to have slaves to have any agricultural surplus for exporting. So economically, especially in the South, 
They believed they had to have slaves to be able to profit from their crops. There's a, there a, a, a statement, to live in Virginia without slaves is morally impossible. This is a view during this time. Christian slaves were free not only from sin, but also from slavery. They believed that if, 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 uh, if slaves became Christians, they accepted Christ and were baptized, they would be free from their slavery. They feared this trend that if they became Christians, they would therefore have to be free from their slavery. And so there was a lack of preaching the gospel to slaves during this time because of a fear that they would therefore be therefore happy free these slaves from their uh, from their slavery. The Bible uh, they believe that give, didn't give the Christian slaves the right to liberty. Christ, Christians along with others uh, during this time rode patrol, served as uh, constables, administered the whipping and generally maintained the private tyranny by which whites asserted their mastery. Christians during this time weren't standing out calling for freedom or calling for the end of slavery. They actually were administrating and controlling slaves. They were afraid of chaos. They were afraid of social and religious chaos. And they believed that if they enforced slavery, they would have social control. Even the great George Whitfield, a great preacher during the first Great Awakening, believed that uh, while, while he preached the gospel to, to African Americans, uh, to, to, to slaves and to whites, there was a lot of people that became Christian who had blacks and whites in the church at the same time. But even George Whitfield wasn't calling for the end of slavery. And even as some who stood calling out the evils of slavery during this time that were abolitionists, were arguing, though, that the slaves should be returned back to Africa. They didn't, belong in the, they didn't belong in the colonies. They didn't belong in their society. They actually should be sent back home. And the view was they were uncomfortable with these strange Africans. They wanted these slaves to be freed and returned back to Africa, not joined into the rest of the society or culture. During the 1830s and the 1865, there was a view that, the, that America was a Christian civilization, and so evangelism and reformed society came out. And so there was this, a need to end slavery to reform the United States. So that's why in the northern part of the United States during this time, there was a lot of abolitionists who argued that slavery should be getting, we should get rid of slavery. And that, and, but in the south, there's still a strong view of, of America as a Christianized nation, but they believed we could be a Christianized nation while still having slavery. About abolitionists in the North really held to a, uh, an immediate freedom of slaves and immediately uh, welcomed into the greater society. The, the, great, um, the great evangelist and preacher, Charles Finney, while he argued for the end of slavery, he, did, he, he still did not argue for bringing whites and black Christians together into one church. He believed in the segregation of white and black Christians. Still continuing this racial divide that black and white should be segregated in the pews. And actually, one of his prominent uh, uh, members of his of Charles Finney's church, named Louis Tappan, believe actually left the church because he could not reconcile this idea that if, the, if, if blacks were free from their slavery, if all men are created equal in God, then why aren't they equal in the church? He left the church. He left. 
Finney's church because of this. There was a strong view that blacks, even during this time, even if they were freed, were still inferior and had inabilities to control themselves and therefore should not be allowed to worship with whites. During, that, during the time of slavery, and especially in the South, 25,000 members of Methodist churches owned 208,000 slaves. 25,000 members of Methodist churches in the South owned 208,000 slaves. They believed, they justified their actions by believing it was in the best interest of order. Order. That if slaves were freed, or if they were brought into the church, there would be chaos. From 1865 to 1917, 4 million slaves were freed. Right After the Civil War, after the Emancipation Proclamation that Abraham Lincoln gave, the freedom to slaves, there were 4 million slaves now freed. Actually, Abraham Lincoln argued and actually tried to come up with a logistical option of deporting all 40 million African, uh, African slaves back to Africa. During the Re Reconstruction in the South, many black former slaves owned seats of power. And by that reality, when the whites in the South saw this division in power and they had lost their, their, their order in their, in their society, they pushed for the Jim Crow laws. The Jim Crow laws separated blacks from whites, separate schools, separate bathrooms, separate seats on transportation. There was a sense where they weren't going to fight for the end of this racialization that was happening in the United States. They wanted unity, they wanted reconciliation, and they declined an in interest when it came to the issues of blacks in the United States. They won their freedom, they had freedom from slavery, that's all they needed. There wasn't a, a, a push for reconciliation between blacks and whites in this end of racial prejudice. African Americans during this time left white churches to form their own churches. They believed that they were denied equal participation in the existing churches. The more towards racial separated churches was not a matter of doctrinal disagreement, but a protest against unequal and restrictive treatment. The view is, is that blacks left the white churches during this time and created their own churches, not because they had doctrinal differences whatsoever, but because they didn't feel like they were treated as equals in the church. There was a fear during this time that if you had whites and blacks going to church together, that white parents, their, their white kids would then marry black kids. A fear of interracial marriages. Even Booker T. Washington, the great black leader during this time, even argues for separation and all good things, purely social. We can be separated as the fingers, yet one as, and one as the hand in all things, essentially to mutual progress. During this time, the great evangelists Billy Sunday and D.L. Moody had separate evangelistic meetings with blacks and whites. This was an issue, and it's still an issue. If we are free in Christ, why is there such separation in the church? Most of the Martin Luther King Jr.'s, his fight was for equal rights. And he, I mean, civil rights movement in the 60s did produce equal rights, in some ways, for African Americans. 
But the problem was is there was never this ever creation of a common community, right? Even to this day, you've got black ghettos and you've got white suburbia, right? There's separate societies, separate communities, never common communities. Therefore, you see white churches in the suburbs and predominantly black churches in the cities. No common community. Civil rights gain rights and freedoms, but not a common community. And the view from most whites in the church, if you ask them what are solutions to this issue, their issue would be, well, it's an individual thing, right? I would argue that individually you should probably, you know, make friends with those who are different from you. The problem is if you never go to church with anyone that looks different than you, how are you possibly going to be friends with anyone different than you? If your friendships are usually created by similarities and proximity, how are you possibly going to be friends or make relationships with people that are different from you if you're never around them and you don't think you have any similarities? 90% of evangelical churches in the United States, 90% of them of the same race. Of the same race. And I bring all this up because this is a huge issue going on in Galatians too. There's a separation. There is a division that has happened up to this point in the early church. Do a little bit of background study. This is kind of the first point: is the gospel to the Gentiles. The gospel to the Gentiles. And the story goes is that Peter, right, in, in, in Acts chapter ten, is on the roof and he has this vision. And he has all this, this sheet of all these different animals that were unclean. And God told him to eat, take and eat. And Peter's like, well, I'm not supposed to eat things that are unclean. And he says, don't restrict what God has called common, right? Don't call something unclean that God has called clean and common. And Peter goes. He's, he's commanded by God to go and to preach the gospel and, and Joppa to Cornelius, a Gentile, and to his family. He shares the gospel with Cornelius and his family, and the gospel pours down in their hearts, and they accept Christ, right? They believe in the gospel. We go back to Acts chapter 11. Peter is kind of summarizing this event and what happens in verse 15 of chapter 10. He uh, Peter said, and the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. From verse 44 through 45, while Peter was still saying these things through Cornelius, as he's preaching the gospel to Cornelius and his family, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even to the Gentiles. Chapter 11, verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way as he baptizes his, Gentile, his new Gentile brothers? Chapter 11, I mean, uh, chapter 13, verses 2 through 3. We continue to see that Paul and Barnabas, who are, uh, who are believers, are now sent out by the church in Antioch to then do what? To share the gospel to the Gentiles. They have been sent out to proclaim the truth of the gospel to the Gentiles. 
And this is an amazing thing, verse 46 of chapter 13. And when Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. The Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The gospel of Paul and Barnabas reject the Jews because they refuse to obey and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, like, I'm, I'm, I'm brushing off the dust from my feet, and I'm going to the Gentiles exclusively and sharing the gospel with them. So the gospel to the Gentiles is welcome news. As Paul comes back, Paul and Barnabas come back from their journey, their, from their first missionary journey, they go and report to the church in Antioch. It starts in verse 22nd, uh, 26 of chapter 14. And they were sailing to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. This was considered as welcome news. The Gentiles had come to know Jesus Christ. That the gospel is to the Gentiles as well. That they are a part of of God's redemptive plan, that they are part of the church alongside the Jews. And going to Galatians 2, we see that Paul, he has yet to actually go to Jerusalem to talk with Peter, James, and John, the pillars of the early church. Those Two of those who were former apostles and one who is the brother of Christ. And so 14 years has passed since when Paul became a Christian on the road to Damascus. 14 years has passed. He now goes to Jerusalem because there's a famine in the land. And uh, there's a prophet who says that there's going to be this famine. So they go down to Jerusalem to collect an offering to bring to Jerusalem. And that's when he goes to Jerusalem for the first time and interacts with these three pillars of the early church, John, James, and Peter. And so he goes and he brings Titus with him. You see this in Galatians chapter 2, that he, that he had gone there and he wants to, to, uh, to speak with them that the gospel is among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was a Gentile, and bring Titus with him, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So basically, they bring a Gentile with them, a Gentile believer, and they go there to show them and say, hey, this is the gospel that we have been proclaiming to the Gentiles. They bring Titus with them, and the, the, the Jewish brothers, the James uh, John and Peter do not force Titus to be circumcised because he's a Gentile and not a Jew. And it says that he was accepted. The gospel that he proclaimed was accepted by James, Peter, and John. We see this in verse 9. And when James, Cephas, and John, Cephas is Peter, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship. <laughs> To Barnabas and me, that we should go to Gentiles and they to do the circumcised. Or they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So basically they said, okay, yes, we recognize that this is God's work. We recognize this is God's plan. That the Gentiles are a part of God's redemptive plan. 
And we, we recognize the gospel that you're preaching. You're not preaching that they should become Jewish, that they should be circumcised, that they should follow the dietary laws of the Old Testament. They accept that. They agree with Paul and his mission and his gospel. The only thing they told them to do is to not forget the poor. That was it. Point number two, the rebuke heard around the world. The rebuke heard around the world. I say all that stuff because we need to present the historical foundation to what's going on in this early part of the church's history. At that point, there was no divisions. They were pretty much in sync until you get to verse 11. Verse 11, when Cephas or Peter, Peter and Cephas is the same person, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Okay, there's an issue. Paul, who is formerly Saul, who persecuted the church, is now a believer, he's now a Christian, he's now a prominent official or prominent person in the church, he's an apostle of Christ, he is, he is by the will of God, by the will of Christ, he's received a revelation from Christ, right? He was not a follower of Jesus when Jesus was alive. And he's interacting with Peter. Peter is one of the early, was one of the disciples of Christ. He was one of the part of the inner circle of Christ. Very prominent person in the early church. He gave the first sermon at Pentecost when thousands of people came to know Jesus for the first time in Jerusalem. Thousands were baptized and then brought into the church. The same Peter says here that Paul opposed him and, 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 and said that. Um, he stood condemned. It's strong language, strong words. Paul, if you reading back in the early parts of chapter two and verse six, he says, "Those who earned, who seemed influential, added nothing to me." Paul did not think that he needed to gain the approval or somehow that he was underneath the authority of Peter or James. Or John. His authority came directly from Christ. He understood that quite clearly. He did not work for Peter. He did not work through Peter. His authority came from Christ. Paul's authority came from God. And clearly he understood his calling from God. He clearly understood who established his authority. It was Christ alone, not Peter or James or John. And it says that for those before certain men came from James... Peter was eating with the Gentiles. He was eating with the Gentiles. Due to what happened in Acts chapter 10, Peter is no longer obsessing over the dietary laws of the Old Testament. He's no longer following the Old Testament dietary laws that you see in Leviticus. He's not following them anymore. He ate with Cornelius. When he went and preached the gospel to Cornelius, to his household, he most likely ate the food from their table, which they never would have done before this event. They ate the food that God had commanded them not to eat in the Old Testament. He was eating. This never happened during the life of Jesus. Jesus, they never ate the food from Gentiles' tables. But yet now we come to a point in the history of God's redemption where there is no restrictions of dietary laws. And so Peter, at this point, he's up in Antioch. He's eating freely with his Gentile brothers. He's probably eating pork 
and enjoying it. He never was allowed to eat it before. And so he, he's enjoying this meal with his brothers, his Gentile brothers. His actions would have been perceived as offensive to Jews. Because the mark of Judaism was circumcision, Sabbath, food laws, and the purity of the law, right? This was the marks of Judaism, was the what they restricted from eating, circumcision of the males and the Sabbath. And now Peter is openly openly uh, breaking one of these laws, which is the food laws. He lived like a Gentile. He was eating with them. And this was an ongoing activity. It says he was eating with them. It wasn't just a one-time thing. He ate with Gentiles. It was an ongoing activity. It was a consistent conduct with the verdict of Peter, James, and John. This was okay. That because the Gentiles are now believers, the gospel has gone to Gentiles, they're not telling Gentiles what they can and cannot eat. They were only told to remember the poor, the very thing Paul says I was eager to do. So Peter, at this point, is openly eating with Gentiles. And this is not an issue with him. He doesn't think he's an issue. He doesn't think Gentiles should be Jews. And then, when certain men came from James... Certain guys, some Jewish men from Jerusalem, came to Antioch. It says that Peter drew back and separated himself. He expressed, they expressed concerns over this antinomial attitude, this anti-law attitude, this sense of breaking the law. It says in, in the early parts of chapter 2 and verse 4 that these may have been false brothers. Bringing us into slavery, we did not yield in submission to the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul is a free man in Christ, an apostle from God in Christ, beholden to Christ alone. The gospel is his chief concern. Paul is concerned for the Gentiles. He is not concerned about Jews and what they would perceive uh, uh, Gentile believers in their restriction of dietary laws or their restriction of circumcision. He's not concerned what Jews will think or feel. He cares about Gentiles and he cares about the gospel. Peter submitted himself to these certain men from James and their concerns, their criticisms, their objections. Peter's theology has not changed. He's not rejecting what happened through Cornelius as irrelevant or against God's plan, believing now that Gentiles must now follow the dietary laws and follow Christ, because of out of fear of these men from James, these Jews, which are called the circumcision party, because of fear, the fear of these Jews, the fear of their criticism, these unbelieving Jews, possibly, because of maybe their persecution that may come because they find out that these Gentiles and Peter are not following the law. I mean, Paul was one of these folks, man. Paul was one of these people who saw people not, eat, not following the dietary laws as offensive, and that's why he persecuted the church. Peter was afraid of these people. He was afraid of these people who may have been coming to persecute these Gentile believers. 
And it says that the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter, so that even Barnabas was led astray by that hypocrisy. Because of Peter's drawing away from the Gentiles, he's eating with them, he sees these Jews come in, he then withdraws himself from them and breaks fellowship with his Gentile brothers out of fear. This impact, the impact of Peter's sin has an impact on others. These Jewish Christians also ceased eating with Gentiles. To those who were Jewish Christians who were also following Peter's lead, eating with Gentiles, freely eating with them, realizing that they are free from the dietary laws, now re refuse fellowship with the Gentiles. They ceased eating. Even Barnabas, who was with Paul, who brought the gospel to the Gentiles on the first missionary journey from Antioch, also ceased to eat with, with, with the Gentiles. Basically, a schism has erupted. A systematic separation and segregation of Gentile believers and Jewish believers based off the dietary laws. Because Gentiles were not following the, the dietary laws, the Jews separated themselves and saw them as unequal brothers and unequal sisters because they did not follow the law, because they were Jewish. Peter... His uh, impact is so significant. Why? Because he's Peter. He's one of the, the, the disciples of Christ. He's one of the pillars. And he betrays his Gentile believers. How do you think the Gentiles in Antioch reacted to what has occurred? Think of them sitting with Peter, enjoying fellowship with one of Jesus' disciples. Someone who went to the empty tomb. Someone who saw Jesus resurrected. Who saw Jesus on the when he transfigured on top of the mountain, right? Who walked with Christ, who heard every teaching of Christ. And he's fellowshipping with these Gentile believers who are no longer Jewish, openly and freely enjoying the joy they have in Christ, and all of a sudden he separates himself from them. How do you think they would have felt? Deserted, rejected, treated as unequal in the faith, further from Christ? Than the, than the Jews, cut off from the actual gospel because Peter has rebuked and rejected and denied them? Why is this such an issue? Why is this such an issue that, Pete, that Paul condemns Peter? Paul says, when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Basically, he's calling them out for being inconsistent. Not consistent with the truth of the gospel. Remember what I said before. This isn't like they're having a theological disagreement, right? This isn't an idea that the Gentiles had a different view on baptism than the Jewish people did. It's not what's going on. Their conduct was inconsistent with the truth of the gospel. Their behavior was in opposition with the truth of the gospel. They were compromising the gospel. They already said in verse 5 of chapter 2 that Titus didn't have to be circumcised. But now Peter is saying you have to observe the food laws to be saved. By his actions. Not like he said this. Not like he believed this. But by his actions, he is saying to the Gentiles that you have to follow the dietary laws. You have to be Jewish to be saved. 
which is a distortion of the gospel, a deviation from the gospel. And Peter is the public head, the leader of this movement. This is the reason Peter is confronted by Paul publicly. He says before them all, before everyone, he calls Peter out. He rebukes Peter. He said, I said to Peter before them all. This is a public rebuke, a public sin, a public influence and impact. And Paul publicly and openly rebukes Peter. And in this particular situation, it was proper. You may go back to like Matthew, right, where Jesus is telling the disciples that there's someone, a brother sins against you, to separate, to go in private and discuss it, right? Paul doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't take him to a private room to rebuke him. He rebukes him openly, publicly, and before them all. And it's proper that he did that because of who Peter was and the impact his sin had. The sins of pastors and leaders requires a public rebuke. So therefore, if I ever did anything, if I ever distorted the gospel, if I ever did some, did, did some shameful sin, I deserve a public rebuke. Openly and before others. None are exempt from correction. This tells us that none of us are exempt from correction. Even Peter is not exempt from correction. Christ is the head of the church. Peter is not the head of the church. Paul is not the head of the church. Pastors are not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. The responsibility of the church is to stand firm in the gospel above all else. Therefore, as a church, as congregants of members of a church, if leaders or pastors sin, they need to be corrected. They are not exempt from correction. And the gospel and the, and the scriptures are what we correct people on. 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul says you live like a Gentile. You consider Gentiles as equal members of the people of God. There's no distinctions. There's open fellowship. Salvation in Christ because of his trust in Christ and not by observing the law. Peter follows this. He said, I am saved by Christ, not by my words, not by my following of the law, but by my faith. And he lived that way. He lived like a Gentile. But now he's reversing his message, forcing Gentiles to convert to Judaism, to Judaize them through the dietary laws, deviating from the truth of the gospel. Point number three, the, persecution of the, church, the persecutor of the church preaches the gospel to the hero of Pentecost. I'm going to be quick through this. Going back to chapter 1 of Galatians, the authority of Paul's apostleship and his message was through Christ. Paul was independent of James, John, and Peter. He was independent. I mean, you, this story, this event, proves that Paul's authority comes directly from Christ and does not go through Peter, James, and John. He had the true gospel. The Peter, James, and John saw this. They affirmed this. The gospel has authority over Peter. Gospel authority is over all pastors and leaders. The gospel that Paul proclaimed has authority because it's from Christ and not from men or some institution. So through verses 15 through 21, Paul lays out the nature of the gospel. He says, Jews by birth 
and not Gentile sinners. We were, Paul and Peter, were, were Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. They were in covenant with God because of their Judaism, because of their ethnicity as Jews. They were not outsiders to the covenant of God. They were not outsiders to the covenant through Moses or the covenant through, through Abraham. These, these covenants that directly tied to their Jewish nature, their Jewish ethnicity. But they were not justified, not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying here is that, and Peter also would agree with Paul on this, that their membership as God's people was not because of their birth as Jews. That was irrelevant. It was irrelevant. Being Jewish granted no saving privilege whatsoever. Paul is basically saying, we were Jews by birth, we were not Gentiles by birth, but that does not save us. That does not make us a part of God's uh, saving privileges. Jews and Gentiles both stand before God as sinners. There's none exempt from that. Romans 2, chapter, Romans 2, verse 12. For all have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. All are sinners, Jews and Gentiles. And all, to be saved, must believe in Christ. Paul even says here in verse uh, uh, 16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by our works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we, talk about Peter and Paul, also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith. We also have believed in Christ Jesus. By trusting in Jesus Christ, by trusting in the work of God in Christ, we are justified. Not by works of the law, not by being uh, followers of the Jewish law, are we redeemed or are we righteous, but by our faith in Christ. Same as Gentiles, same as Jews. There is no difference. There is nothing that separates us from the idea that we are sinful and that we are sinners and we need faith in Christ to be saved, to be justified. They trusted in Christ, they believed in Christ in order that to be justified, declared not guilty, that the passing judgment of God is righteous and good because of their faith in Christ. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 8, verse 33? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. If God justifies you because of your faith in Christ, who can bring any charge against God's elect? But that righteousness, that justification, that being declared not guilty or good, does not come through works of the law. It comes through faith in Christ. By believing, by believing you're granted justification, you're granted righteousness before God. Works do not make you right with God. Romans chapter 3, verse 30. Paul says, Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law of their faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Jews must believe in Christ to be justified. Gentiles must believe in Christ to be justified, not by the law. Therefore, why force Gentiles to keep the law to be saved? Why is Paul 
forcing, why is Peter forcing these Gentile believers in Antioch to follow the dietary laws to be saved? If they're justified only by faith, not by following the law, why are you forcing these Gentiles to follow the law? There is no grace in the law. There is no grace in doing only, there's only grace in do, uh, having faith in Christ. There is no grace in following the law. No flesh shall be justified. Human sin. We are, in the flesh, we are sinful. And it's only by faith in Christ that we are justified. Uh, Psalms 104, 143.2. Psalms 143.2. <coughs> Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. No one is righteous. No one is righteous. It doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how many things you think you do right. You are not righteous. You're not righteous. And people talk about, like, well, you know, you're a friend or uh, someone who's a family member. And sometimes our vision is kind of this idea that people can earn their own salvation, right? If this guy would only just stop drinking, settle down, stop cussing, Right? He would be a good guy or a good person. That is justification by works. I mean, that's not going to save you. Getting your life together is not going to save you. That is the moralism that, that we try to tell people that that's how they're going to be right with God. But only through faith and believing in Christ are you right with God. Only through faith. He says in verse 17, but if, if, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. Peter and Paul are no different than the Gentiles. They all think, sought justification in Christ. The law is insufficient. Moralism is insufficient. Christ is not a minister of sin. Christ has diminished the law. To go back to law to be justified is a sin. Christ's righteousness is, in, is ineffective if we have to follow the law. If we follow the law, if we try to go to the law, we try moralism to redeem us and to save us, we are a transgressor of God. The era of the law has ended. We have died to the law. What is sinful instead of righteous, Peter contradicted the cross. He said that the cross doesn't actually conquer the law. You still have to follow the law to be righteous, to be saved. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. We've now been united with Christ in his death. He killed the law. You have to follow the law to live. Christ lives in me, not by the basis of the law. Our union with Christ is based on faith, not by works. Not based off works. Christ killed the law on the cross. I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. In the flesh, we still struggle. We still make mistakes. We still do as Peter did when we forget the gospel. When we try to stand on our works to earn salvation, we still struggle in the faith. We still put in situations that test our faith. And in those situations, we believe in Christ. We follow him 
in life. We're confident in his love for us. We love our, his love is rooted in the cross. He died for you. And because of his love for you, you look to Christ as the reason for your salvation and identity and not in your works. When we live in this world, when we live in a world that still we struggle with certain things, we struggle in relationships, we struggle at work, we struggle with other things in our life, we, we tend to maybe doubt our identity in Christ. In those times when we're in the flesh, we look to Christ as the, as the, as the, as the means of our salvation and our sanctification. We do not look to ourselves and to our works. And that's why Paul says, I will not reject the grace of God. Acquiring the law or works for salvation rejects God's grace. We deny the significance of Christ's death. He says this here in 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. By working for your salvation, you're denying the significance of Christ's death, his substitutory uh, atonement for your sins, that he stood in your place, and that his cross is not sufficient for your sins. God's mercy, God's grace on you is through Christ alone, not through, right, not through your own righteousness or not through religious practices or observations of the law. That does not make you righteous. It makes you continue to be a sinner before God. And only by believing in Christ are you redeemed. Are you justified? So what are the implications of the gospel? What are the implications of this? The gospel demands unity in Christ with our brothers and sisters. It demands it. It demands it. If there's nothing that we can do to earn salvation on our own, it's only through God, and that's equal. We all stand condemned before God because of our sins, and that we are redeemed in Christ because of Christ's work on the cross, and He gives us faith, He gives us grace. It doesn't matter if you're black or white or Hispanic or Chinese, it doesn't matter who you are, you're equal, and the gospel demands that unity in Christ with our brothers and sisters. Not by works, but by faith in Christ that we are justified. The gospel should move us to unity with those who we are separated from. I love the, uh, what Paul says in Ephesians 3, that the manifold wisdom of God was what? The coming together of Gentiles and Jews and making one church. For the sake of Christ's name, the sake of the gospel, the obedience of the faith, that we should strive for unity and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That with one voice, we glorify God. Not as separate voices. Not as white voices and black voices or Hispanic voices or Chinese voices or whatever. That with one voice, we glorify God. Why? Because we both all know that we are sinners and because of Christ, we are all redeemed. So when we take the Lord's Supper, which we're about to do. In the early church, what was an issue in 1 Corinthians 2 was what? Jews would separate themselves from the Gentiles. Why? Because they saw Gentiles as dirty. Therefore, when they touched the cup, when they touched the vessels, and made the vessels and the cup dirty. Thing is, is that we share the same cup, right? That's what communion is about. We share the same cup. We share the same loaf. We share the same body and blood of Christ. We share the same community in Christ. The same community. And I'm not arguing right now for some like major overhaul, right? 
that Redeemer needs to sell this building and move downtown, right? But something has to happen, right? Something needs to happen where we are unified with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're sick and tired of the separation that is present currently. It bothers us. It bothers us. It doesn't sell well. Why? Because we're all in Christ together. We're all unified in Christ together. And separation or desertion from our brothers and sisters for Christ, whatever reason, is not consistent with the truth of the gospel. By any means. By any means. And so what I'm arguing for this morning, what I'm arguing for in the coming months, the coming years as a church, is to pray consistently that we as a church are consistent and step consistent with the truth of the gospel, and that we strive for unity in the faith. Amen. That we strive for it. I have no idea what that means. I have no idea what that means. I don't mean. I don't know if it's some major overhaul. I just don't. Know, but I think. I think the best place to start is prayer. I think the best place to start is say, man, who who are we separated from? Who are we separated from? Who are true followers of Christ? Who are true believers in Christ? And how are we separated and how can we come together? Why? Because if the church comes together as one, we are one voice to the glory of Christ. And the world sees us as one voice, as one people. It proclaims the manifold glory of God. The manifold wisdom of God. And so that's what I want to pray for right now. And as we take the Lord's Supper um, after I pray, I want us to think as we pray about who in our congregation, who in, in, in the midst of our Christian society are we separated from, and how can God bring us together? Dear Lord, we pray, Lord, to this morning, this afternoon, whatever. Lord, did you just uh, help us understand the weight of this passage, Lord. Lord, would you open our hearts to see the sin in our hearts that is creating this separation. Lord, back in the time of Peter and Paul, Lord, there was a division amongst the Jews and the Gentiles over dietary laws. While in our context, Lord, dietary laws is not the issue of our separation. History is the issue of our separation. Ignorance is the sense of our separation. Uncomfortability is the reason for our separation. But whatever the reason is, Lord, it's not consistent with the gospel. And Lord, we ask that you would help us as a church. A church that's on the west side of Evansville, that's predominantly white, Lord, would you help us to seek out those of our brothers and sisters that we are separated by, and that you would help us to move to unity. That you would help us to get uncomfortable. That you would help us to sacrifice the areas that we need to sacrifice, Lord, so that we would have unity in the faith. Lord, we want to stand on the gospel. We want to stand on theology. We want to stand on your word. We do not want to compromise on any of those things, nor are you asking us to. What you're asking us to, Lord, is to walk consistently with the gospel, with the truth of the gospel. And we ask that you would help us. We ask that you would help us to do that, Lord. And our flesh and our weakness 
Lord, in our issues with awkwardness and all these different issues, Lord, I pray that you would help us and move us, Lord, to walk consistent with the gospel. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. If I can get Adam and Ditton to come forward, we're going to take a little supper together. And um, the way that we do this here is this is for believers. So if you're a follower of Christ, please take the bread and drink the cup. Um, also, this is for those who have been baptized in the faith, so if you've been baptized.